0: even what i was a a working southern baptist minister who believed in uh well your, your audience probably isn't familiar with the term complementarianism uh within within <laughs> christian no, <I'm> theology not. <laughs> <laughs> the idea that man and woman were made to complement each other but that there is still a hierarchy
1: oh gotcha
0: there is still a hierarchy mm-hmm. you know what i knew that the nuts and bolts of that just did not work in my marriage I did not come home and say to my wife, I'm the man, I'm the husband, uh, I, I, I am God's umbrella over you to protect you and guide you. Uh, that doesn't fly too well in most relationships.
1: Today, we welcome Brent Peek, who is an Arizona-based therapist and coach, but formerly a Southern Baptist preacher. In this episode, Brent's gonna to talk to us about his journey away from his deeply religious roots and and tell us how it affected his life and his practice. Now, you may not know this, but dad was formerly an evangelical pastor as well. He went to seminary in his 20s when he was just a young fella and actually started a church in Winnipeg in the early 80s. It wasn't until maybe 15 years later in the mid 90s that he changed course to support people outside of a religious structure as a psychologist and an educator. So for me, growing up as a pastor's kid, I felt enormous pressure to conform, to conform to the rules and the regulations of religion. But I'm sure you've noticed I've since completely abandoned religion for a more personal and intimate spiritual connection with what I believe to be a higher power. So often, spirituality is lumped in with religion So if you say that you're spiritual, or that you believe in spirituality, people are like, oh, you're religious. But it's not the case. I think people do this, we as a a society, we do this to save time and energy. We just immediately classify people based on little bits of data we receive about them. But I think as we'll explore through the episode, nothing is that black and white. We're also going to talk about whether there's a place for spirituality in a therapeutic session, and if so, what that looks like and how these two former ministers integrate spiritual energy when working with their clients. Welcome to the Human Being Project, a podcast hosted by my dad and I, that's an exploration of finding meaning and purpose in who we are rather than what we do. I'm Janelle Thiessen a keen observer of human interactions and behaviors, and an advocate for being, for being present, being authentic, and staying open.
2: I'm Ron Thiessen, a psychologist, educator, and facilitator, and I'm on a personal journey to find a balance between a lifelong habit of productivity and the presence or being state that nurtures my spirit and seems to have the greatest impact on the world around me. In each episode, Janelle and I explore ways to make space for more being and less doing, to focus on spiritual energy, intuition, and the relationship between heart and mind so we can positively impact the world through our conscious doing.
1: Okay, so, Fred why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself?
0: So, I am a therapist, a licensed professional counselor in Phoenix, Arizona, I own a practice, North Valley Therapy Services, where I, I work primarily with relationships and trauma, and I, I've been told I should divide that up and stick with a niche here, but I don't know how to separate the two because they are so interrelated. In fact, the form of couples therapy that I use, relational life therapy, is uh, primarily about recognizing the impact that our early relationships had on how we deal with stressors in our relationships now. So so I do a lot of trauma work. I do a lot of relationship work. And more recently, I've been working on a slow transition into online uh, coaching and wanting to build some courses around self-compassion, empowered self-compassion, and being able to help people more broadly through online work as opposed to just here in the state of Arizona where I'm licensed to do therapy. So mm-hmm. I'm a therapist and coach and I'm, I'm passionate about helping people live out a life of empowered peace with themselves and with the world around them. That's
1: amazing. And yeah. let me say that I have already witnessed some of your content, like I was saying before, and it is just brilliant for self-compassion and for actually some of the dealing with trauma stuff i think i was in one of your lives on instagram asking questions you
0: showed up once you were the one person i paid five bucks to show up and ask me a few questions yeah thank you the amazon gift card is on the way uh so yeah yeah i I haven't had more than two people show up live yet but i've only done two so that's fun
1: what is that about social media? Why is it like that? I just don't get the engagement thing on social media. I guess there's just too many
0: voices. There are a lot of voices, and i'm I'm beginning to I'm beginning to realize, and I think I think some of the people I listen to have been saying this all along, and I kept ignoring it, hoping it wouldn't be necessary. But consistency <laughs> uh, to right. break through. My my guess is that for. For every post or video, reel, or story that I notice from someone, they've probably posted 20 other things that I Yeah, you're know. right. And mm-hmm. so it's consistency and volume, I think. I'm not speaking from a successful experience on that yet, but <laughs> that's, that's what I'm currently working on.
1: So I learned a little something about you when I reached out because I, I saw that you were a therapist mm-hmm. and that you were focusing on self-compassion. And I thought, man, you'd be such a great guest on our podcast. But then there was another little nugget that came out in our discussion. What blew me away about this little nugget is the um, comparisons and consistencies between your lived experience in some ways and dad's lived experience in that you both have roots in religion, basically, right? You were once a Baptist preacher, were you not?
0: I was. (laughs) I am technically still an ordained Southern Baptist minister.
1: So you can do weddings and everything.
0: I can marry him and bury him, absolutely. Oh. <laughs> yep.
1: How about you, Dad? Are you still an ordained minister?
0: No, no, I'm not. No.
1: How do you become not ordained anymore? How does that?
2: <laughs> it's because if you don't maintain your membership, uh, then you, you know it, it just it it becomes defunct just by
0: default. So oh, yeah, it's I, a membership thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That may actually be the case for the church that I. I was ordained in, but if it if it did happen, they haven't notified me yet that my credentials have been <laughs> revoked. Um, and I'm still good friends with that pastor. We chatted on the phone just the other day. I, I although we haven't really talked about my transition out of that very much, so I it, mm. I, I don't know how much of what may come out in this conversation will be a surprise to him. But and if he's listening, Gary, I love you. Uh, and if you're listening, I still love you. <laughs> I still absolutely adore him. He is one of my favorite people on the planet. So are you comfortable talking about this online? like this? Apparently I am. So let's go for it. Okay.
1: (laughs) You called this, Brent, you said this would be your coming out as a religious man, right? As a previous religious man. Previously,
0: yeah. I almost hate to say coming out. I don't want to make trite of people for whom it really is truly difficult to come out around certain issues Mm -hmm. in their life. But this is definitely... uh, uh, this this is the most public I've been about my own journey out of conservative fundamentalist evangelicalism.
1: And what about you, Dad? You don't you don't talk about it either.
2: Yeah which for sure in my work as a psychologist, it's uh, you know, proselytizing is not something that you can do and maintain your license. And uh, in my teaching at university, I point kids to the way to live, but I don't I don't wrap it in religion at all. Uh, in fact, I, I really encourage them to explore their own thoughts about religion. Uh, you know, I do have uh, students that come and ask me, uh, so it seems like, uh, you know, maybe you believe in God or, you know, like, uh, so uh, what, what do I do? And I, I just tell them you, what you need to do is just go back to your to the roots of what you understand was, uh, I don't know, relationship with God or, or your spirituality. I really talk a lot about spirituality and spiritual energy. And it opened up a really interesting dialogue with both students and clients um, that we can ha- actually have a conversation about spiritual energy and spiritual power and, and higher power, or, you know, it, without, without it crossing any kind of boundaries as far as the client or the student is concerned. And, you know, I live in a very secular society. Like we have uh, in, in Montreal, the, the city that I live in. 0.2% evangelical Christian. 0.2% the lowest in North America, and o- overall in Quebec, 0.5% evangelical Christian. So, you know, the evangelical church is not very strong in Quebec, and mm. and religion is strong because the Catholic Church has been here for hundreds of years, and when people started leaving the Catholic Church in droves, uh, the Catholic Church told them, "Well, you are abandoning God." And so they said, fine, if we're abandoning God, then let's abandon him and and let's just do as many things that we can think of that <laughs> represent the opposite of what we think God thinks. So it's it's led to a very secular society. But there is there's such spiritual hunger. And, and anytime I'm talking about spiritual energy, like people connect and they go, See, that's what I'm looking for. How do I do that?
0: Now, I hear a term like spiritual energy, and I assume that a lot of people hear that and then kind of project a meaning onto that. But how do you they define do. it? They do. Yeah. I, uh, or do okay, you work so with whatever energy, they're projecting on it? it
2: exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I tell them I'm not talking about religion and I'm not talking about God. You know, I, I'll say to my, my clients, I'll say, so tell me what you think about a higher power. And the automatic, almost automatic reaction I get is, I don't believe in God. I say, well, I'm not talking about God. I'm talking about a higher power. And then I point out to them, I say, you know, if you think you're the smartest person in the room, we're in trouble because you came to me for help. If you think I'm the smartest person in the room, we're in trouble because I know me. And we are sitting here talking head to head about problems that human beings have had for hundreds and hundreds of years, and we haven't been able to find the solutions. So if it's just us two minds working here we're not going to find the solutions. Let's not kid ourselves. We need access to something greater. And for me, whatever my beliefs about that are immaterial, but we do need something. We need access to higher power, higher wisdom. So some people think about, uh, it's very rare that I find someone that says, I don't believe in anything beyond myself. Very rare. Uh, but people think about it as you know they think about it as divine energy they think about it as the universe they think about it as god they think about it as as uh, the collective human wisdom all of those things are absolutely fine with me you know I, I i don't have any i don't have any issues or any problems with with people thinking like that because i know that as long as they start to realize that we are spiritual beings and that we have to ha- find spiritual answers for the things that we face the problems that we deal with then they're on the right track, and and they're going to find it in many different ways, and I'm okay with that. I get my my evangelical Christian friends who will ask me, and my mother used to ask me this all the time uh, before she passed away. You know, well, don't you feel like you you should have a uh, you you should feel constrained that you should give them the gospel? Okay, this is this is always a question. No, I don't feel constrained at all. What I feel like is I am in my practice. I have like a little hut at. The, at one of the crossroads of their lives, and they're coming to me for counsel, and I'm saying to them, "If you want successful, this is the way that you should go. If you want what you've always had and what you, you want to continue having that, then go this way." And you choose, and then they choose, and and I'm totally fine with their choice.
1: I'm not sure it's that black and white, but Brent, I'm curious to hear mm. your thoughts on what he said. I
0: I. Yeah with what I asked you originally about, you know, them projecting onto it, I, I probably do Mm. work that way quite a bit. Um, Mm. most of my clients don't know that I, you know, for 15, 20 years was a evangelical pastor, but I do live in one of the most conservative voting precincts in Maricopa County, Arizona. And so they do make assumptions about me that there is some degree of consensus. And around basic human values, there is among all of us, I think, you know? Mm. And so that's Mm. what I tend to come back to. Um, Mm. And and I would say I'm a bit proud of the fact that I've been able to effectively work with a broad spectrum of people, backgrounds and religion and all that. I don't back off of what I think may be really important for them to hear. For example, the couples therapy that I do, is all about power differential and balancing out a power Mm -hmm. differential. Well, that doesn't flow too well with patriarchal beliefs that tend to Mm -hmm. be a part of conservative evangelicalism. And yet I've never had any of the Christian couples that I work with really buck against that much. And it's clear from the material I give them that I believe patriarchy is part of the problem here. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, I've never really had anyone disagree with that and I think I think it's probably because at the end of the day people know what works or doesn't work. Yeah. Even what I was a yeah. a working Southern Baptist minister who believed in uh well your, your audience probably isn't familiar with the term complementarianism uh within <laughs> within <laughs> Christian no, <I'm> theology. Not. <laughs> <laughs> the idea that Man and woman were made to complement each other, but that there is still a hierarchy. Oh, gotcha. There is still a hierarchy. Mm-hmm. You know what? I knew that the nuts and bolts of that just did not work at my marriage. I did not <laughs> come home and say to my wife, I'm the man, I'm the husband. Uh, I, I, I am God's umbrella over you to protect you and guide you. Uh, that doesn't fly too well in most relationships. And so... <laughs> You know, even when I espoused those conservative views, I knew that that wasn't mm-hmm. deep down, maybe not consciously, but deep down, I knew that wasn't how it worked and how to have a, a really healthy relationship. I think that anytime two plus two adds up to more than four, you've got some spirituality going on, meaning, mm-hmm. purpose, something bigger than, mm. uh, yes. you know, than the than the essence of what you're seeing. I do not claim to have any authoritative word on what the nature of that is. Mm -hmm. But I haven't followed him as much lately, so I really don't know what he's up to. But Rob Bell is someone that I followed in the past and I'm a fan of. And I remember hearing him talk one time about uh, he was out paddleboarding with his wife out on the Pacific. And he talks about a whale coming up between them and the awe of that moment. Just jaw dropping. This is the most Mm -hmm. amazing thing I've ever seen. Okay, well, breached the water all the time out in the Pacific Ocean. But in that moment, for those two people, that happening right there, there mm-hmm. is meaning right there. There is mm-hmm. awe right there. There is something greater right there. I do not claim to know the nature of what it is, and it may have been manufactured in the moment by, by what was going on in the neurons in their brain. I don't really care. It matters. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. That, to me, is spirituality when, when mm-hmm. things are more than what they seem like that. And that's something that I think we need to choose for ourselves. So Mm -hmm. in my work with clients, I believe that that's something that can be chosen. So whether you see it as a metaphor for how you want to live or the actual nature of the universe, I don't really care. Where are you going to find your meaning? Where are you going to find what matters for you? And if if, if it's not there, make it. Create it. Mm. I don't see anything wrong. Mm.
1: So it sounds like you have um, a far more... Um, like I would say if you have a spiritual background, Brent, you have incorporated it into your practice sort of seamlessly in the sense that, A, you're not abiding by the belief structure anymore. Like it's not, it's not pertinent to you. I think, do you call yourself an agnostic now? I don't know. (laughs) Well, isn't that what an agnostic is? They just don't know. They've just decided, you know what? I don't know.
0: (laughs) I don't know if I'm agnostic enough to speak with authority on what agnostics are. My understanding is that an agnostic is someone that that would say that our ability to uh, uh, understand and define that true nature of whatever there is out there is just not possible. Whereas an atheist has made the conscious decision I choose to believe that there's nothing there. Um, right. So I suppose I'm a little more agnostic than I am atheist. I'm hopeful. You know, yes. I I would love. I, I I don't think there is a higher power with distinct personality. You know that explicit personality and volition, the way most Christians would say, uh, and people of other faiths. I'm hopeful that there's something or someone out there that's looking out for us, but I'm not worried if there's not. Hmm. I I think probably as close as I'll come to being concrete on it is that I like the Bible verse that says, God is love. I hope that's a Bible verse and I'm not just being a nominal Christian that thinks it's in the Bible. Um, (laughs) But I'm pretty sure there's a Bible verse that says, God is love. And I would just prefer to switch it around and say, love is God. Nice. I, I like that. I think that's where I'm at. I choose to make our benevolent connections my higher power.
1: Mm. Uh, yeah, I think I would agree with you on that one, Brent. I think that would be the way I lean as well. So how did you go from, what What transition happened where you're, you're? Uh, I, I don't know, were you like the um, primary pastor of a Baptist church? Like what, take us back to that. Uh,
0: so I, I went to school for that, but no, I ended up spending most of that time in children's ministry. So working with children oh. and families. It started out as children's ministry, and then as it became cool for churches to have family pastors, I did more of that. And that was where my, my I guess, part of my passion for just looking at relationships and systems really came into play. And uh, back in 2011, I I felt the need to go back to school, realizing that I probably wasn't going to be able to be a children's pastor forever. Thankfully, the church I was at at the time was very supportive of me working on a counseling degree. I graduated with my master's in professional counseling and in working with a counseling agency part-time while I was still a full-time pastor. I fell in love with counseling. Now, I was still a Christian, although I was having a lot of questions by that time. I, I felt like I was finally doing something that was really making a tangible difference in people's lives. Right. And I felt like I just had much more informed answers to get them to, or at least Mm -hmm. recommendations, guidelines, um, you know, try this. So the, the work just felt so much more tangible and was so much more rewarding than what I was doing before. I fell in love with it. And by the time I graduated, I knew my next job was going to be as a therapist. So that was in 2016. I think I, I went to one service to hear a friend preach after that. And that's the last time I've been in church.
1: So that sounds like you, you pretty much, you made a move and then you just cut your religious ties at that point?
0: Not completely. My shift was not a fast one, but neither was it a difficult one. I know a lot of people go through a crisis of faith, a dark night of the soul. I never did that. I have told people for years that I've just been on a slow journey away from fundamentalism. I grew up in a very ultra conservative circle of churches, independent fundamental Baptist churches. A lot of people that I went to college with in my Bible college days weren't too thrilled that I got ordained in a Southern Baptist church because Southern Baptists were not conservative (laughs) enough. I, I was taught that Billy Graham was bad. Because he allowed Catholics on the stage at his campaign. Oh, I mean, no one else was good enough for us <laughs> in the circles that I grew up in. So that's what I came out of. And I I just tell people I I've been on a slow journey away from that my entire adult life. I mean, I can almost yeah. look at one issue at a time that I would let <laughs> go of. You know, I remember going back and telling my I, in, in my college days I kind of let go of the idea that the King James Bible was the only inspired version for the English speaking world um, <laughs> I the, the things that we got hung up on um, wow I know right but yet that really matters to some people and so I remember going yes. back and telling my high school Sunday school teacher um, you know he was talking to me about uh, those heretics that aren't using the King James Bible anymore and I said I gotta be Jeez. honest with you I have a new King James Bible now. That's literally (laughs) what I told him. (laughs) The the man literally turned his back to me, walked away, and I've never heard from him again.
1: No way.
0: Yeah. So I've I've been on a slow journey out of fundamentalism, and it just seemed like one small natural step after another. I did spend a, a good period of time wondering, like, can I call myself a Christian? What do I actually believe? I'm not really sure. I did make a conscious choice in my first year out of church to say, okay, you know what? I'm just going to live like none of that was true and see what happens. Kind of a thought experiment. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm not going to try and stay in church. I'm not going to try and figure it out. At the same time, I got connected with a particular circle in the therapy world that just pretty much changed my life. I never really missed anything when I left church. I still had people to talk to. I still had a supportive community Good. of friends, of fellow mm-hmm. therapists that I was getting to know uh, and connect with. I, I never really felt like I was missing anything. And so I I came to believe that, yeah, there are there are some common factors here, whether you believe in something or not, that can still be a relevant part of your
2: life. Do you find that you mentioned that when you went and you got your uh, degree in counseling that you really felt like you were helping people? yeah D- do you feel like your education and your training gave you uh, like systems to to assist people? You're doing very specific work right now you're doing in in relationships and trauma. And, and like you said, you think they're very uh, they're very connected. As a result of your education, did you feel like you got very, Uh, Specific and targeted
0: things that you could do that made you more effective in those fields? Yes. Uh, Mm. Yes. I I don't know so much if it was the education. Most of what I do as a therapist isn't from my degree work. (laughs) Okay. Um, (laughs) It is trainings afterwards. Much of how I work now is based on what I've learned since leaving school or what I've learned about what I learned at school. Mm. But going to school was certainly a necessary foundation for all that to kind of give me a framework. What made me the therapist I am are the people I've been around, the other therapists I've been around, my supervisors especially, the more experienced Mm -hmm. therapists that I've had the opportunity to be around. And initially, I would say it was my supervisor when I was still in grad school and working as an intern, my supervisor and some of the other people that she brought in to help us with training it was just the very practical things I learned from those people about how to be a therapist. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of practical things that were immediately usable in my sessions. I, I remember very vividly my very first counseling session. And <laughs> and what I remember the most was my determination that this woman would not realize she was my first client Ever. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember coming out of that session and my biggest win was, I didn't let it spill and (laughs) she didn't figure it out. For my first client, my first private client, uh, it was very
2: easy for me because he just talked nonstop. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) from the time he walked in the door, I didn't have to say anything.
1: Brent, on, on your website and in your social media posts, I heard you say that you have created a system it says here on your website, creator of the Embodied Trauma Recovery Model. Yeah. What is that?
0: Yeah, I mm-hmm. want to know. <laughs> uh, it's fairly new and it's developing. One of my first th- uh, jobs as a therapist, once I got licensed, was as an inpatient therapist at the Meadows. And they have a very specific model of how they do therapy. And it is very much about inner child healing dealing with childhood trauma, Mm. the effects of it on adult relationships, very similar to attachment styles, anxious and avoidant, all that, but not quite the same. So the the form of therapy that they use there is called post-induction therapy. It was developed by Pia Melody. Um, She wrote the book Facing Codependence, Facing a Love Addiction. Mm. Um, And so it was a very distinct model of... Mm development, of treatment, I knew within a couple weeks of being there that I was either going to need to drink the Kool-Aid or leave. And (laughs) it's good Kool-Aid. So Pia Melody's work uh, is the foundation of everything that I do. And also provides what I would say is the spiritual underpinning for the work, which to me, the most important part of that is the belief that you matter, the belief that there is Mm -hmm. something about you or a part of you that is infinitely valuable, infinitely Mm -hmm. inherently valuable. And to me, my work, my job is to help people discover that, see it, connect with it, and then live it out in their life. One of the things that they do at the Meadows is they give new therapists the opportunity to go through the program, a week long intensive Mm -hmm. to address childhood trauma. And I've got it. It was the most Powerful, profound, and I would say spiritual experience I'd ever had, and that was after twenty years of uh, trying to lead people in spiritual experiences, going through my own post induction therapy process. it changed my life over the years one of the one of the big parts of my uh, journey as a therapist has been realizing that There is a lot of what we do as a therapist that whether intentionally or not, we keep hiding, we we, we keep, not hiding, we keep clothing these interventions in certifications and licenses. And so much of it actually comes from non-clinical interventions and modalities. I do not claim to be a hypnotherapist, but in the work that I've done around getting some training in hypnosis, there is a massive hypnotic element in what happens in most trauma therapy nowadays. So, basically, I've, I've embodied trauma recovery is based on PM model, and then for the interventions, it is about going back to what I think are the roots of a lot of modern therapeutic interventions, that weren't initially clinical. So neuro-linguistic programming and hypnosis Mm -hmm. and simply some aspects of more what people would say is spirituality, but around manifestation and attraction. I don't claim to be a believer in that, but I I like the language of it. And Mm -hmm. I do believe that whether or not the mechanism for it is whatever they say it is, I think there's something about it that works. Um... You know, I think we all agree that if you always focus on the negative, guess what you're going to experience a whole lot of yeah negativity for sure.
1: So that embodied trauma recovery model is that like a is that a program a person goes through, or is it is it just a a, pr- a technique that you use in even in one session, or is like is it a prolonged thing? Or
0: it's a perspective and a program. So so mm-hmm. there's some presuppositions to it that we have that inherent infinite. Worth and value. So that's one of the pre- presuppositions of it. So, in that sense, there are, are things that I hope my clients will believe. So, then the program itself is primarily about whatever tools are going to help someone connect with that infinite, inherent source of worth and well being. Mm. I don't care if they attribute that to their spirit and God, I don't care if they simply see it as a metaphor for their existence and frankly to me that's what it is if it is an actual spirit of some kind great i'm happy with that if that's what it ends up being for me great but it doesn't really matter if someone sees it as a metaphor or a real thing i think it becomes real and it becomes a powerful tool in therapy and so i've also wanted to be able to develop a model that is not dependent upon being a licensed clinician i want to be able to create something that i can offer to people uh, outside of my practice and to be able to get to the non-clinical roots of some of these things, you know, uh, EMDR has a number of pieces to it that come right out, out of hypnosis and NLP. Uh, right? What is EMDR? Eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Oh boy. It's one of the most common therapies for uh, trauma nowadays, although it's applicable okay. for a whole lot more. And the, the key aspect of it is that it uses what's referred to as bilateral stimulation. So the EM stands for eye movement. So most most EMDR therapists that are going to use eye movements probably have a little light bar on a desk in their office. And it looks like Kit from Knight Rider with a little red thing that goes back and forth. <laughs> nice. And you just watch it with your eyeballs while while the therapist takes you through a series of visualizations or memory recalls. So that visualization piece is also one of the presuppositions of embodied trauma recovery that visualization is powerful and effective. Yeah. That's where some of the hypnotic elements can come in. But I, I believe that being able to visualize something can be a part of your healing. Call it the placebo effect if you want to. There was a recent study that just came out on ketamine that if the subjects of the test are under general anesthesia when they receive the ketamine. They don't know right away if they got the ketamine because they're not getting the trippy effects of it. And in that setting, mm-hmm. when they are more and they are more likely to believe they did get it, than if they're not under general anesthesia and they kind of know right away if they got the ketamine or they got the placebo. There, there's a lot out there on the effectiveness of placebos, which to me is about positive expectancy, visualization, belief. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. I do think that there is so much power in our mindset. So trauma gets in the way of mindset. So embodied trauma recovery is about removing those blocks from trauma. So some people don't need as much trauma healing necessarily, but a lot of people do. So embodied trauma recovery is about addressing the baggage, the blocks, and the behaviors. So the baggage is the trauma. The blocks are going to be how you're thinking, how you frame things, the mental blocks. And then the behaviors are what are the habits that are going to support your emotional well-being. There are so many non-psychological factors that impact Mm. us. So many physiological factors. I was just reading this morning about lactobacillus. I think I'm remembering the name correctly, a bacteria that's in yogurt. And in stressed individuals, it is low. And if you increase it, it can decrease symptoms of depression and anxiety. So there are so many physiological factors, but this is where the behaviors come in. Nutrition, movement, rest, mindfulness, connection with other people. So many things that don't seem directly Mm. connected to what's happening in your brain, and yet they are. Mm. So my goal is to come up with what I hope is a a rather holistic model that addresses the three things that I see getting in the way most often of someone's well-being, emotional well-being, trauma, uh, cognitive framing and behaviors, habits that may or may not seem directly connected. So embodied trauma recovery, uh, the goal is for it to address all of that. There are pieces yeah. of it that can be used in different contexts, but it is it is meant to be a, a holistic model for a coach or a therapist to use. And
2: you do a lot of uh, virtual coaching, like people could get a hold of you and and they could use you as a coach,
0: even though you're in Arizona, right? Okay. Yes. Yeah. So and that and that was a factor in looking for non clinical ways to support people. My goal my goal has been to find non clinical interventions that are effective.
1: Yeah, and then you can use them anywhere. Yeah. And anyone can benefit from them.
0: And it's and it's going pretty well for the folks that I'm working with. Yeah. I can work with people from out of state, but when I do, I'm a coach, not a therapist. Right. And I don't use clinical interventions. Okay.
2: (laughs) If anyone from the board is listening.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So
1: what is it that you are focused on right now when you are looking for new clients or expanding your practice? What is it that you're focused on right now?
0: I'm working on expanding the opportunity to connect with people online. So I would like to do more. Not your practice. Yeah, not my practice so much. I mean, right now I need it to pay the bills. Yeah, there was a time where my private practice was my side hustle while I was still working in a hospital. Now my private practice is my main source of income and my side hustle, which is what I'm really wanting to focus on and and get into uh, full-time over the next year, is online uh, courses and group coaching. So working on a course right now on self-compassion, I think that the the idea of self-compassion fits really well with what I've learned as a therapist Mm -hmm. and what works, specifically empowered self-compassion. Where it's not this idea of just, I'm just going to love myself and everything's going to be fine and I'll just be this little entitled <laughs> flower over here. No, I, empowered self-compassion where I value myself and I live that out in my relationships without being a jerk about it.
1: Ooh, so some balance there. I like that.
0: I like mm-hmm. balance. I like balance. Yeah. Um, I don't like extremes.
1: I don't think extremes are healthy.
0: No. I mean, that's one thing I learned from Pia Melody, that if you're in the extremes, you're you're in an unhealthy position always get a little nervous when you find yourself in the extremes. It's not that they are never called for, but most of the time an extreme response is required in an extreme situation. And even then, I would still be cautious about an extreme response to something. Yeah, so I'm, I am not a fan of extremes. I am a, I am a fan of moderation and balance. And <laughs> I think that too many people look at self-compassion and make some unbalanced assumptions about it, that it's either yes. entitled or you're gonna lose your edge, it's not assertive enough, you know, can a high-powered attorney practice self-compassion and still be a high-powered attorney? Sure, is someone in a competitive field gonna lose their advantage? Uh, No, I think there's a way to live that out. My favorite example of that Mm. is the book 10% Happier from, uh, what's his name? Uh, (laughs) the, The Good Morning America guy from several years ago, he had a nervous breakdown, like on air, twice and got into mindfulness, yoga, meditation, mental health and well-being. And he talks in the book about how one of his biggest fears was losing his edge in the competitive newsroom. Mm. But it's actually become an avenue for him to really expand what he does. Wow. I believe he's still with ABC. Um he was as of a year.
1: Is that Dan Harris? Dan Harris. Talking about Dan yes. Harris? Yes.
0: Dan Harris. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So re- reading his book there was really helpful for me personally to be able to Kind of like I knew it for myself, but I wanted other people to know this, too, that you, you're you not going to lose your edge by loving yourself. <laughs> uh, and loving yourself also doesn't make you an entitled, arrogant jerk. Uh, right. You know, those are out of balance. Uh, so to me, it's to me, the best way to live life is is very. Uh, dialectical which is another therapeutic term there
1: right over my head <laughs>
0: <laughs> dialectical behavioral therapy is uh, one of the key components of it is that we can hold two seemingly incongruent thoughts at once you know mm. and and with my clients I just I, ca- I call those however statements you know I really screwed up this project at work and I'm afraid everyone thinks I'm a loser now however and then you need to follow that up with a balancing mm. statement. Not a positive one necessarily, not something that is in denial and up in the clouds about the situation, but a balancing statement. And if you can't think of one, then just say I could be wrong. You know? I think I'm a loser. However, I could be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. And a, and a lot of the and a lot of the really negative things that we say or we assume about our situations, I think we'd want to be wrong. You know? I mean the couples that I work with, I tell them, look, T- tell the person that right now they seem like a jerk. That's okay. But also let them know that you're open to being wrong about that. Like, <laughs> yes. wouldn't you want to be? Like, I think you hate me right now. I I think you're out to get yeah. me right now. But I'd love to be wrong. Help, help me yes. see that. Yeah. Help-, help me out there.
1: I could see that working.
0: So that, to me, is part of that balance. And I think that kind of balance requires a lot of intellectual humility as well. So... You know, if I am working with a defense attorney uh, or a surgeon, perhaps you really can't afford to get it wrong at work, but you know what? Stop bringing your work home. Let's have some intellectual humility in your relationships and be willing to be open to other people's experience. So that's balance. That's, that's being able to, that's relational. I love the word relational, being relational with each other instead of trying to manage everything around us.
1: That's great, Brent. I, I've Really appreciate the things that you've shared with us today.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: Your personal story and also how you translate that into your therapy and coaching. I'll be sure to include your website. Is there any other way that you would like to include for people to connect with you?
0: Uh, Yeah, my website is brentpeak.com. Pretty simple. There's a few links there if people want to sign up for a free resource or a consultation. Um, And then I'm on Instagram, uh, BrentPeak.etr for Embodied Trauma Recovery.
1: Nice. Well, thank you for for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you all for
0: having me. I
2: enjoyed this. Yeah. Lots of insight in the things that you said, and I, I really appreciate you making the time
0: to be here. I enjoyed it. Thank you.
1: Yeah. If you want to know more about the work that Brent does, both with his therapeutic clients and in coaching sessions, You can get in touch with him by heading over to northvalleytherapy.org. That's his website. And he has some great articles and really cool resources that I think will support and help you strengthen your relationship with yourself, using self-compassion, and then also your relationship with other people. You can find the link in the show notes. We have a very interesting podcast episode lined up for you next week with Neil McKay. He's a Scottish podcaster and comedian living in Vietnam, and he has some really hardcore skepticism of spirituality and strong opinions about people like me who believe in something bigger than themselves. His almost irreverent take on most of the things we talk about in this podcast is kind of entertaining, actually. Unfortunately, we recorded the episode without Dad um, because, as you can imagine, coordinating a conversation between... Three time zones and three work schedules is really tricky. But uh, Neil and I pulled it off anyway, just the two of us. So brace yourself for a crazy convo next week. See you then. Do you have your own story about being versus doing? We want to hear it. Or maybe you have a different perspective on the things we discuss in this podcast. We'd love to have you as a guest. To get started, visit the changeevolutionist.com forward slash podcast guest. What did you think of this episode? Join the private Change Evolutionist community chat to share your thoughts. Find the link in the show notes. You can now record or text a question through FanList. Just head over to fanlist.com forward slash human being project and set up an account. Your question, comment or feedback and our response to it may be featured in one of our new Q&A episodes coming soon. Never miss an episode. Get notification to your inbox when a new episode is released. Download to your device or listen wherever you get your podcasts. To get notifications, go to thechangeevolutionist.com forward slash subscribe.